today we're looking at Second um, Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 18. So if you'd like, you can turn to that in your Bible or it'll be on the screen behind me. So we're picking up after last week, we looked at um, God making a covenant with David where he promised that his kingdom would, would go on forever. And so today we're looking at David's prayer of response. So starting chapter 7, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that you have, we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed from your, for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself and your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word. Thanks, Lise. Well, I don't think I introduced myself earlier. If I haven't met you, Andrew, um, on staff here at Christ Community. Um, there's lots of good stuff coming up, as, you, as you've heard already, and uh, at least just under, underline the wreath. So I might underline the, the Centenary Evangelical uh, Church session next Sunday. Uh, as, as we've heard and, and um, Pete mentioned, that'd be, that'd be a really valuable time for everybody to get along to, not just those in Centenary suburbs. Uh, in, in December, we're going to be voting at the AGM on, on whether that's something we want to partner in as a church. And so that'll be uh, spoken with with Ben and Faith this week. Uh, they've, they've planned a really thoughtful agenda for that time, and so I can I encourage you to do your best to make, to make it along to that. Okay, well, this morning we are continuing our series in, in 2 Samuel. Uh, as we've, we've heard a few times, this is uh, this chapter we're up to. It's not only a significant chapter in the book of Samuel, but, but one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. And that's, of course, because we find one of the clearest uh, promises and pointers to Jesus and, and God's great plan of salvation through him. Let's pray as we ready ourselves to look at this prayer together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and this portion of your word and what you will speak to us through it. Thanks that you've given us many different prayers for different occasions through your word. 
Uh, thanks for teaching us how to approach you and trust you and relate to you. And thank you for the Lord Jesus, by whom all of these things are possible. Please bless and guide my words today. And through them, would your word shine forth and bring life and light in our lives. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, well, perhaps like at yours, uh, there's lots of interesting and unusual things that get discussed at our dinner table in the evenings, uh, many of which I would have never predicted that we'd be talking about on, a, on that given night. Uh, and this week provided another example of that. Uh, this week, one of the topics of conversation for us was Elon Musk and an interesting new fragrance that he's released. Uh, did anybody see a news article about that? Okay, I haven't seen any hands, right here. Uh, I hadn't seen the news either. But the kids had heard something on the radio, were very excited to share that with me. Given their excitement, I thought, okay, it must be something a bit strange about this. And that's when they said, guess what it smells like that? I said, I, I don't know, what does it smell like? And, and, uh, and then I said, is it, I thought it must be something a bit, bit zany. I thought, oh, is it something like burnt hair or something like that? And they said, actually, that's exactly what it smells like. It's even called burnt hair fragrance. Now, you can Google the details of that yourself later. Uh, let's just say, in another sign that Mr. Musk just knows how to pick a product winner, uh, within 24 hours of an announcing a new product, Burnt Hair Fragrance, uh, something like 30,000 bottles have been sold. Uh, millions of dollars of sales, a total sellout of the product. Uh, just in case anyone here might be keen to get a sense of what that scent might be like, uh, I looked up the details on the website. According to the website, this perfume, it smells like you leaned over a candle at the dinner table, uh, which, which, which sounds really lovely until you remember it's the smell of burnt hair from leaning over a candle at the dinner table. There you have it. With today's passage, uh, it's actually nothing to do with burnt hair but I reckon we do get the scent of something burning throughout it. And it's the scent of David's heart, or to describe it more fully, David's burning heart for God. Uh, in verses 18 to 21, we see David's heart burning with humility and gratitude towards God for his grace. Uh, in verses 22 to 24, we see David's heart burning with adoration and praise towards God for his greatness. And then finally, in verses 25 to 29, we see David's heart burning for the glory of God and with confidence that God will do all that he promised. And so th those are the three blocks we're going to look at the passage in today. Humility and gratitude, adoration and praise, glory and confidence. Now, many people have noted that this, is, um, this prayer of David's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. You might have thought that as you heard it before. And to that, I just want to add, I reckon it could be timely as well. And I say that for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that whilst the smell of burning hair very undesirable ordinarily, uh, I think we'd agree that the sensation of a burning heart for God is something we do desire. Uh, I think there's, there's much in David's prayer here to spark our, our admiration and affections for God again. And the second reason uh, is closely related to the first, and, and that is that despite having this desire for a burning heart, uh, I suspect that, that some of us would freely admit that our hearts just aren't as, as fired up as they should be at the moment. It's not that the fire is out. It's, it's, just, it's not as hot as we'd like it to be. Uh, maybe the flames of fire have been doused a bit by, by difficulties or disappointments or just busyness of life in the world. And so, so my hope is as we spend time in David's prayer, our hopes and hearts will be um, kind of enlightened and kindled again. 
Well, let's look at the passage. As I mentioned, I've titled the first block of verses, Humility and Gratitude. I reckon right from the get-go, we see David's heart just burning with humility and gratitude towards God for his grace and promises to him. I'll read the opening lines again. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. If you were here last week, you'd remember that by this time, King David, he was living in a palace in Jerusalem. And evidently, this palace, it offered something of a stark contrast to the tent that held God's presence, the tent that held the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it was as David looked on that, noticed that contrast. That's where the idea comes to build a house for God, and in turn, God to promise to build a house for him. And so it's pretty striking that we find King David now sitting in that tent, and not just in the tent, but likely on the floor in that tent. Uh, it wasn't a common thing to go and sit before God in a tent. There wouldn't have been a chair in there. We're told he, he's sitting in there with God. Now, we aren't told how long David sat there for. Perhaps it was just a few minutes. Perhaps it was, it was a few hours. Perhaps it was a few days. But his words tell us what was on his mind as he sat there, don't they? What was on his mind was wonder. Wonder at why God had chosen to make him king. Wonder at why God had protected him and brought him thus far. And as if those blessings were, were nothing at all to God. Wonder at the fact that God would grant such blessings and promises to him for the future to come to. Promises of an unimaginable scale. Promises that would be instruction or truth for all mankind. That would affect all people on earth. Uh, clearly, he gets the significance of these promises. Uh, have you ever found yourself in a moment of grateful wonder towards God like that? Perhaps sitting on the floor of your house, wondering, God, why have you brought me this far? Why have you placed me here in this country, and maybe at this time, maybe in this job or this friendship group, this church, or this situation? I'm wondering, God, who am I that you would carry me through such circumstances or privilege me in this way? Sometimes we can ask wondering questions of God when things are really hard and not lining up the way we, we want. God, why did you allow this? God, why haven't you done this? And those questions, they're not bad. They're, uh, the Bible invites us to bring those questions to God, encourages us also to wonder upon his grace to us. Uh, many times through scripture, we find people just blown away by grace, wondering who they are, that God would show such kindness to them. How might doing that regularly warm your heart towards God, even enliven your prayer life uh, with him? Now, it's quite possible that as we come to David's wondering here, we could find ourselves thinking, well, I think I can think of a few reasons why God, God uh, has chosen him and protected him and promised him such things. I mean, David's the guy who took out Goliath when nobody else was game to try. Uh, David's the guy who united God's people and subdued all their enemies. David's the guy who, he was evidently a great leader. He was Israel's greatest warrior. It seems a pretty obvious choice on why God would, would bestow such a blessing on him. And, and yet David, he sees these things through quite a different lens, doesn't he? 
I'll just read verse 20. He continues, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Rather than seeing all those things as a big list of his achievements, he recognized they were all God's achievements. They were of God's grace and God's heart. It was God who'd taken him from tending the flock. It was God who had appointed him the leader of his people. It was God who had been with him wherever he went. It was God who had brought him the victories he enjoyed. And now it was God who was promising him a dynasty that would last forever. And as as he wanders upon all of that, it leaves him struggling for words, doesn't he? What more, what more can I say to you? He's just so humbled and grateful to God for his grace to him, just sitting on the floor there marveling at God. Okay, so that's the first chunk of this prayer. As I mentioned in the second, second part, we see David's heart burning with adoration and praise towards God for his greatness, and particularly his greatness displayed in history and his dealings with his people. Again, I'll read the next bit again. He says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you. There's no God besides you, according to all we've heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. I'm sure you've noticed as we've been going through, there's a title that David is using for himself throughout uh, this prayer. And the title is Servant. You probably noticed that there. Uh, He's already referred to himself that way three times, and we're going to see it again and again. Did you notice there's a title he keeps using for God as well? It's the one we see there in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. He he doesn't exclusively use this title, but he definitely majors on it. Already he's said it five times in just a few verses so far. And again, we're going to see him use it more times in, in the verses to come. Now, on the one hand, this title for God, it makes sense for this moment. And I say that in light of what each of the words themselves mean. O is kind of emotion, reverence, honor. As many would be aware, Lord in capital letters, that's our our Bible's way of displaying God's personal name, God's covenant name, Yahweh. And then the third word there that we find translated God is the word Adonai, uh, which means Lord or ruler. And so when it's used of God can convey the sense he's the Lord and ruler of everything. But this word's also used commonly to identify one's personal Lord or ruler or master. Uh, It's a term that acknowledges uh, one you serve a pledge of loyalty. So now as we think about this moment for God, it makes sense he chose this title, kind of expresses honour and glory to God, but it also corresponds with the, the title of servant he was using for himself. But there's something, I think, a bit more going on here too. And to show it to you, just want you to look at another occasion where this same title turns up in our Bibles. It turns up in a few significant places, but I want to turn just to the first uh, occasion it turns up. And so if, you, if you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn to Genesis chapter 15 with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, no worries, you can just, just listen in. Uh, Genesis right at the start of the Bible, a couple of pages in, chapter 15. 
Okay, well, as, as I said, this is the first time in the Bible we find this title for God used. And it seems more than a coincidence that we find it here used in the, in the context of another set of covenant promises. I mentioned earlier that 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a really key chapter in the Bible. And Genesis chapter 15 is another key chapter in the Bible too. In 2 Samuel 7, we find what's called the Davidic covenant, David's God's covenant with David. Uh, back in Genesis 15, we find what's called one of the passages about the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. Now, I'm not going to go into heaps of details, but as a, qu a quick recap, just a few chapters before this, God speaks to Abraham, makes some incredible promises to him, just like we see him doing with David at the start of chapter 7 here. Uh, and so, for example, he promises to bless Abraham, to give him offspring, promises to give him a great name, make him a great nation. Uh, you can read all of that in, in chapter 12. And then if we fast forward to chapter 15, we find that as yet, that doesn't seem to have been all that much progress. And what we find is Abraham daring to ask God about these promises he's made. And that's where we see the title used, uh, verse 2 and verse 8. Now, whilst we might be inclined to give a lecture on, on patience or feel a bit offended uh, uh, or tell someone to just to trust us if they ask about a promise we've previously made, uh, in Genesis 15, God does something amazing. Uh, rather than take any offence at the question, he instead instructs Abraham uh, to make all the arrangements for a, co a covenant ceremony that would have been familiar at that time. I'm sure you might remember the story, but... Abraham's to cut up the pieces, cut up some animals, spread it out, ready to pass through. The amazing thing is then God alone does the ceremony, binding himself to the and reinforcing these promises to Abraham. And then he goes on to reiterate and expand on them and provide some very specific details about them. That it's going to involve Abraham's descendants spending some time in slavery and then being rescued by God in dramatic fashion. And that following this, he's going to establish them in the land. Okay, now that's a bit of detail, but I'm highlighting all of that for us here because I reckon David's use of this title and David's prayers in this chunk, they suggest as he sits there in the tent before the presence of God, alongside his wondering upon God's grace to him, the greatness of God in his life, I reckon David's also filling his mind with all the amazing things God has done in history in the, in, uh, for his people in fulfillment of his previous promises. I think he's filling his mind with the awesome reality that when God promises something, he really does do it and nothing can stop him. And the proof's in the pudding before him, isn't it? I mean, God had said to Abraham, they'd be a people and here they were now people. Uh, he'd said to Abraham, he, he's going to rescue his people in amazing fashion uh, from enslavement. And he'd done that right on cue. Uh, God had said that they'd reside in this land, and now they were there, right, in this land. And God had said he'd be their God, they'd be his people forever. And he was here proving it once again through these promises to David. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears, he says. In these verses, we find David's heart just burning with adoration and praise towards God for his greatness, in particular, his greatness displayed in the fulfillment of his promises to his people. I think David here gives us another important lesson in how to fuel our worship and faith and love for God. 
by reflecting on his promises to his people through the ages and all the glorious ways God has kept those promises. This is why regularly reading the Bible is so, so important and why we study and preach through the whole of Bible, not just some verses from here or there. It's because as we look at the overall storyline of the Bible, it's there that we're reminded that God is not just a promise-making God, he is a promise-keeping God too. It's because it's as we do that that we are reminded that God's faithfulness, his incomparable power, his perfect justice, these aren't just interesting theories and theologies. They are really true, proven true in history. How might intentionally reflecting on God's promises through the ages and his greatness displayed in, in bringing those promises to bear in history, how might that fan into flame your hearts when, when the flame is dying down? How might it help sustain your praise and adoration when the wait feels long or a particular moment of life feels hard? Well, that brings us to the final verses of David's prayer. And here we see David's heart burning for the glory of God and with confidence that God will do all that he's promised. Once again, I'll read it out. He says, and now, O Lord God, Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Well, having praised God and having pondered his greatness, here we find David petition God for the first time in this, in this prayer. Uh, and on face value, it's a bit of a strange prayer request that he brings to God, right? Uh, I say that because essentially he just says, God, would you please do what you've said you're going to do? I see that at the end of verse 25, do as you've spoken. And verse 29 is essentially the same thing. There he, he just goes into some detail of what God had promised about blessing his household, continuing it forever. Now we have to ask, why does David pray uh, this particular prayer request? Of everything he could pray, uh, is it that he's worried that God will not keep his promise that he's just made? Does he think that God needs a reminder uh, of this promise so he doesn't forget about it? Well, far from that, I think what we see here is that David is absolutely certain God will keep his promise. And in fact, that's why he's praying this prayer. Look at me again at verse 27. He says, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I'll build you a house, a dynasty. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Notice the explanation. He says, in effect, God, I never would have dared to ask such a thing. But you promised it and revealed it to me. And that's why I'm praying for it. Uh, in verse 28, we discover another certainty that's driving his prayer. See there, he says, you are God, your words are true. 
I've heard many people say there's a whole lesson in the theology of prayer to be found in these few verses. I I think that's very true. We could chew on these verses for hours, right? Uh, And we don't have hours, but it's a key takeout I want us to notice. That is, in order for our, to pray with confidence, for our prayers to be God-glorifying, they needed to be grounded in the promises of God, like David's are. And for some of us, that might be a new idea, but for others, others of us, that might be a good description of our prayers. Uh, I think for many of us, our prayers can be a bit like shopping lists, just heaps of requests, uh, rather than thinking about God's promises in light of, of situations and needs. At least mine can be at times. Um, I came across a few good quotes this week that that bring a bit of colour to this lesson on prayer that we get from David. This is how a few different people have captured and explained it. Uh, One one commentator said, uh, prayer pleads the promises of Scripture. Another one said, faith takes God's promises and turns them into prayer. Uh, Another one said, like this quote, says, the the main lesson of the prayer is that God's promise should ever be the basis and measure of prayer. The mould into which our petitions should run is do as thou hast said. Uh, There's no presumption in taking God at his word. I think this last bit's really beautiful. He says, true prayer catches up the promises that have fallen from heaven and sends them back again as feathers to the arrows of its petitions. We often sing about shooting up arrow prayers. We want to feather them with God's promises. Now, there's all sorts of questions could be jumping to mind for us now. As I said, we could chew on these verses for hours. But to finish up today, there's there's two key questions. Just want to have a crack at answering uh, only briefly, but at least offering a start. The first question is, if God has already decided to do something, if he's already promised to do something, uh, what do we need to pray about it? Uh, it's a good question. And the brief answer is well, we need to pray because not only has God sovereignly decided and promised to do certain things, but he's also sovereignly decided that the means by which he'll do certain things is by the stirring and answering of his people's prayers. Or to, or to put it simply, prayer is how the promises are delivered. Now, clearly, that's what David believes. You see that here. And we see that evident in the prayers of many other people in the Bible. We see the psalmists asking God to do things he's promised, pleading with him on the basis of his promises. We see the prophets doing likewise. And we see this in the prayers of Jesus too. Uh, You might like to take some time later to think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about the promises that accompany it elsewhere in his teaching. That brings us to the second question. How do we know what God has promised us so we can pray it? I mean, Nathan goes in and announces God's promises to David. The answer, of course, is we find them in the Bible, don't we? And here's something truly amazing. As we spend time in God's word, we discover that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are the recipients and beneficiaries of the most incredible promises imaginable. Not just a few promises, multitudes of them. The Bible is a a treasure trove of promises. For example, God's word promises that through faith in Jesus, the offspring of David, we are adopted as God's beloved children and offspring. See that in John chapter 1. That means he becomes a father to us. We become children to him. We enjoy his compassion, his discipline, his his ever-faithful love. 
It also promises no matter what our backgrounds contain, if we confess Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved from the judgment to come. That we will be forgiven all our sins, enjoy peace and life with God now and forever, that we will somehow rule with Christ forever. God's word also promises that there's an inheritance set aside for us in Christ in heaven, kept secure for us there, that somehow even the most painful moments of life are now but light and momentary, a light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory being prepared for us who are in Christ. He promises that God wants us to cast our anxieties on him because he truly cares for us. It promises that there is help to be found in the midst of temptation and that nothing is impossible for God. In it, we are promised that Christ will be with us even to the end of the age and nothing can separate us from his love. And we could keep going on for hours, couldn't we? The Bible is a treasure trove of promises. It's possible as we considered David's wonder at the start of this prayer, we could have found ourselves thinking, it's, it's no wonder his heart was burning for God. Look at all that God's given him and promised him. The truth of it is, in Christ, we've been promised and given and had revealed to us immeasurably more than what King David enjoyed, right? If you're here today, you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord, just want to say, I'm so glad you're with us today. Can I encourage you to look into the life and death of Jesus for you and look into the resurrection that proves he is God's king. He alone is where life and hope is found, and he offers that to you today. And here's one more promise for you today. Jesus promises that those who come to him in faith, he will never, ever cast away. Uh, it's today the day that you'll receive him as Lord and Saviour. Well, today we've considered David's prayer in response to God's amazing promises to him. We've seen his heart burning with humility and gratitude, with adoration and praise, with confidence in God's promises and, and desiring his glory. Let's now pray likewise in light of God's promise and grace to us. Would you join with me? O oh Lord God, who are we that you have brought us thus far? That you would bestow such love and privilege and greatness on us, adopting us as your children, granting to us life forever with you. Because of your promise, according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness for us. Oh, Lord God, there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all we've heard with our ears. Lord Jesus, thank you for redeeming us from slavery to sin and redeeming us from fear of death. Thank you for doing that in the most awesome and unimaginable way, experiencing and defeating them for us at your own cross. Thank you for all your tremendous promises to us. God, thank you that you, your words are true. Please do for us all you have promised so that your name may be magnified forever. And we ask this for the sake of your name. Amen.